0: This week, it was my absolute pleasure to speak with Alexia Ng, co-founder of Cult Beauty. As a genuine fan and possibly their biggest customer, it was a joy to speak to her. A true kindred spirit who, as a female tech founder in the mid-2000s, shared many lessons and feelings that mirrored my own when building Not On The High Street. A trailblazer who pushed boundaries, challenged the norm and revolutionized the beauty industry. After a serious car crash and a long period of recovery, Alexia was determined to make something positive come from such a dark time. So she built Cult Beauty, a tech brand which gives a voice to small independent businesses. A woman after my own heart. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from The Kitchen Table, and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK Ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs with thanks to NatWest who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi Alexia, it's Wonderful to meet you, and I'm excited to talk to you today about the incredible business, your business, Cult Beauty. Before we started chatting, I've just already shown you half, I think, your stock on your site that happens to be on my <laughs> desk. So it's sure to say you're speaking here to an avid skincare buff, and I believe we're kindred spirits. Hello, I think
1: we are. That was a very easy conversation, and <laughs> my desk is looking pretty similar to
0: yours. Oh, look, we've actually been sharing our skincare gadgets and actually just doing a little bit of a review on them while we were chatting and things. So it's a genuine conversation today and it's fantastic to be talking to you, Alexia. I'd love to know where you're recording from today. I'm here sitting at my desk. I recently, well, last night got a puppy. So it is asleep. Um, His name's (laughs) Chewy, Chewbacca, Uh, and he's asleep right next to us. So we might be interrupted, but all good so far. So where are you in lockdown number two? I am
1: in Raines Park, just working from home home as uh, as we've locked down the office. And have you been locked down the entire period of time? Pretty much, yeah. From the point of view of our HQ, we reopened in July for anyone that wanted to go back to the office. And a surprising number of people actually did really want to get out of their homes and not see their flatmates for the day. It's definitely given a, a new appreciation of the daily commute, that's for sure.
0: You're not the first person to say how much people are appreciating their office and the commute and the morning coffee like never before. But let's get into this podcast, because I love to start these stories with childhood. And I know that you grew up in a little village in Somerset. Mm -hmm. And it sounds idyllic growing up surrounded by nature. Did you want to be a city girl surrounded by makeup counters or were you quite content there? As a teenager, I was desperate to get
1: to the urban. The city, the buzz is so boring was generally the kind of phrase that mum got. The minute that I discovered what the big smoke held, I was absolutely mesmerised with getting there as soon as I could. We didn't have the internet then, so yeah. you were really marginalised in the regions. So and the nearest shopping centre, with any kind of decent shops was Bristol, which is like an hour away. You know, just to get there for the weekend just felt so buzzy. But during the weeks, there was just nothing, just the magazines, looking through magazines, sort of dreaming of the future.
0: And so what was school life like for you? Was it sort of similar? Was that a nice welcome break from the countryside to get in with your school friends? And did you have subjects that sort of took your fancy? I had quite a broad variety of subjects that I liked. I studied art,
1: French and biology for A-level. I never completely knew what I wanted to do. It was always a bit of a jack of all trades and I always worked my ass off. That was one thing that happened, just a complete nerd at school, totally focused on actually trying to achieve what I needed to get to London.
0: Was that the goal? Because <laughs> I was going to ask, where did that drive come from? I was born in South Africa
1: because my parents were both journalists out there. But then we lived in London for about four years when they came back before we moved to Somerset. So I had a kind of taste as a young child of the wonders of this city. And, you know, from the age of about 13 was really where I wanted to do my Dick Whittington.
0: Isn't it amazing that sometimes you have that sort of call, that sometimes as children, we actually really do know where we're meant to be. Yeah. So you were always going to be this London girl because when you left school, you went on to study fashion design at university. Yeah. What was that like?
1: I don't know. I think it's a difficult course to study at university because it's so creative and ultimately it's such a vocation. Mm. So it's quite difficult to intellectualize fashion it's such a gut feeling and you it's one of those things that you either can tune into it and you've either got that sense that turns you into a great fashion designer like a cultural barometer to a certain extent or you don't and I think really I I learned a lot about range building visual appreciation and the creative aspect of it was really useful but I've also realized that I was not going to be the next John Galliano. And ultimately, I always thought, well, there's no point in actually throwing yourself into something. It's so all encompassing. You live it completely. And if you don't have that brilliant talent, then there's no point in going for that particular vocation. But, you know, being around fashion and understanding the business side of things and the cutthroat elements was really, really useful.
0: It's quite a narrow pursuit in a sense. You know, it's not necessarily that you can turn it to other things, although you have. And not long after that, you then went into the very glamorous world. So it was this connected of modelling. So you decided not to pursue the career of fashion, but you were still in the fashion industry. And, you know, I can imagine it was very exciting. Actually, the modelling
1: really came from my younger sister, Olivia, was already making her name in modelling by the time I was at university she got her big break age 17 and actually started working (laughs) Paris New York
0: (laughs) sorry I'm just going to just let him out one second (laughs) (gasps) have a look at this little thing this is Chewbacca oh here he is and he's eight weeks old. Oh my God. He is I mean, so just. Cute. So he's a border terrier yes. like our other one and just the sweetest little thing ever. So he's just going to go back to sleep, hopefully, after that little interruption. Come on, back in there. There you go, darling. There we are. Oh, he's gone back to sleep already. That's good. So we got to your sister. So she made her big break at 17. I think she walked for Vivian Westwood
1: in London Fashion Week, but then she started doing Paris and New York Fashion Week as well. And My it was goodness. In holidays between term times or half term, she would be doing this modelling gig. And I mean, I'd kind of watched her do that. For a while. And, you know, I would be working waitressing through the whole holiday and she would end up earning the same in a day <laughs> that I did in the three months. I was like, do you know what? Came out of university with some pretty mega debt. And I was like, actually, you know, if they'll have me, I might actually do this instead of doing the gap year that I didn't do. And uh, ended up working as a model for a couple of years. Was it glamorous? Was it fun? Did you work with your sister at all? I didn't actually end up working with Olivia that much. I think in modelling terms, we're very different. She's like much more of an editorial style model. I was much more commercial. They loved me on the wedding scene. Oh, my God. It was like much to my chagrin. I wanted to be like super cool and edgy. But they were like, yeah, she'd be so amazing. Like, So you were bridal gown? I did quite a bit of bridal, but I did fashion week, So around the world, which was pretty awesome. I mean, it's quite interesting. You know, you're not the master of your life as a model. You are dictated to by your agency or at the time you definitely were because I think models have much more of a voice now that there's social media so they can build up a social media following and have their own voice. So yeah, it had some really glamorous moments, but it also gave me a real insight into the not so attractive underside.
0: I also read when researching you for this podcast that everything changed when you were involved in a terrible car accident at just 22. Can you tell me more about this period of time in your life? Talk about a punctuation it was it was definitely a full stop for a bit.
1: I'd just come back from Australia. I'd gone home to see mum and dad in Somerset and we were driving to see our Granny and who was actually in hospital at the time, and um, yeah, another car came around the corner on our side of the road. It was fifty miles an hour. We were both going fifty miles an hour, and it was just a head-on collision, which broke my sternum and my back. I still remember, like, as at the hospital, I was my dad was driving, and I was more worried about him than me. I had a shoot for The Face magazine which went under and then I think it's just been revived and it was like the coolest magazine at the time and I had this mm. six page shoot that I was desperate to do the weekend afterwards and with a broken back and barely being able to breathe through my sternum I was like I am going to be okay for next weekend
0: right? <laughs> you were very very lucky to get out of it alive. Yeah. It was a very serious accident and it, it must have been as you said a real full stop in your life, a turn point yeah. because At that point in time, am I right in saying that really your career in modelling ended? You had to do uh, physio for um, two years. You had to learn to walk again. You really did have this sort of life-changing moment so early. It
1: wasn't as bad as that, but it was pretty terrible. It was um, four months in a cast and I was at home. And actually, one of the factors that made it really hard to get back to modelling was the wonderful home food that my mum made. (laughs) (laughs) and um, by the end of those four months I have to say the cast that they'd put on me (laughs) which was basically like a bustier from um, just above your boobs to kind of right at your pelvis (laughs) where I could barely take a full breath (laughs) after all that wonderful Somerset cheese so yeah I had to kind of do a big rethink of what the plans were and I'd never intended to make modelling something for the long term and it definitely wasn't a, a long term career Then as it's a little bit more so now. Yeah, it was kind of right. What can we do? I knew um, Hilary Alexander from working on shoots and I basically contacted her and said, have you got work experience? And then ended up doing work experience on the Telegraph fashion desk which then turned into a job for a couple of years.
0: You had received some compensation for your accident. Yes. You basically decided to do something with it. By chance, you met Jessica, who went on to be your Mm co-founder. And together you had this idea for Cult Beauty and the compensation money that you'd been awarded suddenly had some real purpose. Yeah. Did you find your partner in crime when it came to being obsessed about beauty? Yes, That was definitely the case. And I think
1: when I finally, it took about four years to get the compensation money through. But when I finally had it, I knew I didn't want to touch it. I wanted to turn what had been such a horrific time into something really positive. So when I met Jess and when we decided to start cult this was such an obvious no-brainer it was like this is it so half the money went to building the website and the other half went to keeping me going for a couple of years without any uh, income and Jess used her savings on from her side and we worked from her spare room as well. So it was a very lo-fi operation to start off with, very bootstrapped together.
0: It's that classic entrepreneurial story. And it was only after 18 months that you both were able to pay a salary of £500 Yes. A month. It felt like a king's ransom. At the time, it just was the
1: first time paying ourselves 500 pounds, seeing 500 pounds in our account from a business that we had started really. It had so much meaning. It was jubilant.
0: I think people sort of underestimate sometimes they're going through it and they think that no one else has gone through it and that maybe they're doing it wrong or they're destined to failure because it's so hard. I mean, bootstrapping, it's serious stuff, isn't it? You know, those early, early days, literally not taking income, worrying about every single penny, not knowing if it will work or if it won't work. Can you remember those times? Yeah, I mean, they they
1: never leave you. I mean, it, it feels like the biggest gamble of your life mm-hmm. I mean, all of your savings, leaving a perfectly good job. Yeah. <laughs> Just jumping off into the oblivion of unemployment and even worse, like literally spunking all of your cash on a website and logo design and building a website. When you are very bootstrapped when you don't have a lot of money, any web developers, you'll always be at the bottom of the list for them. So Mm. the website that we were building, the delays got longer and longer and longer as other more lucrative jobs came into that agency. And I think we went through, we had three different developers before we found the ones who, who actually developed the original cult beauty site, which was very different from the site that we have at the moment. Kind of almost wanted to send a little congratulation email to every customer who had actually made it through the checkout, <laughs> because there's just so many different things the checkout did, like the crystal maze. Yeah, it really, really was. It's like, well done, you made it. Woo! I kind of got the feeling that customers quite liked that quirkiness that at the time I guess Mm -hmm. our uh, attention spans were definitely longer than I think we were dealing with an average attention span of 32 seconds from arriving onto the website so um, you had 32 seconds to hit people with relevant content that would make them continue now it's eight now you have eight seconds a decade on it's amazing what's happened to our attention spans and I, I think online things have got so slick and we've been trained to sort of certain ways of doing things you know you know the search bar is going to be at the top you know there's this 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 so you've got less and less scope for swapping things around on the design of a site than you did when we first did the site it was a lot more kind of new, innovative, Wild westy vibe yeah. because
0: these conventions hadn't been decided yet. You were consulting with experts in industry, you know, dermatologists, makeup artists and asking them what was their top 10 products and putting those products online. And there was this transparency, again, along with the sort of how you shot your products. There was something that now feels very today. But then I can imagine it really was alien to the customer. You know, you started using the blogging community like no one else was. You were sort of challenging convention. Mm. You were asking those bloggers to tell their stories and you sort of met your match in heaven there, didn't you? Was it your journalistic days? Why did you know it was going to work? I think it was a
1: few things. I still remember when I first discovered what blogging was, when I worked for Gap, I mean, it was ooh, was it 2005, and they had a marketing conference that used to happen every year, and and we went to San Francisco, which is where they're based. And during this marketing conference, they presented a lot of innovation that they saw coming in the marketing space. And there was this one talk from somebody about blogging and about how this was something they could see becoming a thing. And I think it it really stuck with me because actually the way that they were coming at it was. This is a threat to Gap mm. because we can't control the messaging. I was like, ooh, that sounds great. <laughs> it's like the little rebel in me was like, did a little somersault. I was like, ooh, something that the mainstream media can't be controlled. That's a really interesting concept. And, you know, that I then started looking around at blogging and, it, you know, it was very basic and it was very tech based at the time. So it really wasn't that interesting But, you know, that really stuck with me as a concept. And when I started to see the UK bloggers coming online, talking about beauty, talking about something that we both shared, it wasn't so much a matter of using bloggers. It was growing up together. It was contacting them and going, isn't this hard, this online thing? And, you know, all of the brands were ignoring the blogging community and they would contact me and say, look, I've just seen this awesome brand on the site. Can I call in a sample? And I was like, do you know what? I've got one. Can you send it back afterwards? Wow. Just try a bit and see what you think and then send it back afterwards because, and then I can send it on to someone else and we can kind of share it around because we just didn't have the budget for this kind of marketing. So it really was a, a growing up together sort of as the internet started to flourish and become slightly more mainstream.
0: NatWest's support for small businesses goes way beyond simply finance and day-to-day banking. Through their online business hub, you can find all kinds of useful information on how to kickstart and grow your business, from strategy and planning to sales and marketing. And it's all free. Head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash hollytucker, where you'll also be able to view my exclusive video sharing top tips for small businesses and sign up for free email business updates. Now, as you know, every week we run a competition with NatWest who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. (sighs) Inhale. Adventure. Calm. Beautiful scents, think Libby Lavender. I am Libby Lavender herself. I am Wendy Lavender. And we sell candles and diffusers. Imagine sleeping on an orchard on a summer's eve. This is one of the beautiful
1: scents that we have in our collection, apple and black currant. All our scents are customized to fit your home. From subtle to sweet smells,
0: we have fragrances for everyone. Take a look at our full range at LibbyLavender.co.uk. Our Facebook and Instagram is libbylavendercotswolds. Contact us at info at LibbyLavender.co.uk. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. It sounds like trust had a lot to do with it. The trust that you were building, I know you have trusted beauty insider status. When it comes to beauty, I'm sure that's like the golden nugget. That's what any beauty company wants to have. But it feels like the way that you were going about things, turning it on its head, being with those out there who were also on a sort of a journey and sharing the experience and actually being transparent with the customer in a way of saying, look, we're not the big boys and girls here, but what we are is honest yeah. and we're going to tell you the truth. And it's funny, isn't it? Nowadays you think, yeah, that seems like a really good strategy, but then that's not what was happening. I think
1: it was born out of a real frustration at the kind of marketing of the days was something that I called head pat marketing, which is sort of, don't you worry your pretty little head about the science bit, you just give us your money and we'll right. make your lashes long. And it was just the way that you were spoken to as a beauty consumer, is a pseudo-scientific claptrap that it was always just a little bit opaque
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and then actually the way that beauty was sold is that you would come in just to one particular brand even if you're in a multi-brand retailer and it was less about selling you the range of beauty that was in front of you and more about really getting as many of that one brand's products into your basket so I always felt like I kind of had a little bit of a dollar sign on my forehead when I walk into those situations ultimately for a complete beauty obsessive like me should be a sweet shop yes actually i find really intimidating and it's got nothing to do with the people that work there because they are all amazing when you actually sit down with them but it's the way that they're incentivized and that they have to make their their money on the commission basis i think that is changing now but at the time it was very very prevalent when jess and i were co-founding cult so it was in reaction to this. It's like we wanted to build the most trusted beauty retailer in the world. And that is Cult Beauty's mission. That's our focus for everybody. Ultimately, I've always thought that if you have trust, you have a business. It's a long-term sustainable business. Mm -hmm. People will come back. You don't have to pay them to come back. They'll come back because they want to come back. And then if you add in entertainment on top of that, on top of knowing that you can yeah it's I always said like knowing it's like a beauty hall of fame where you know anything you get at cult beauty is sell your granny good Um, (laughs) (laughs) no one will let me use that
0: one I can't think why (laughs) I don't know why I don't know why let's go back to 2008 when it all started because this was a time that the world was in the grip of a very deep recession Mm -hmm. and I remember it very well Sophia I were right there building not on the high street at the time do you think now Looking back, that launching during this time made you more resilient, I suppose, or more, more creative when you went about things. Yeah. I mean, it also
1: took away all of our other options. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it did make me very resilient and innovative because there's nothing like absolute necessity to really make you creative. Yeah, it's true. Like, you know, we started this, we didn't have lots of money, so we couldn't invest in paid marketing, which is why Mm -hmm. storytelling is so much at the heart of everything cult beauty does because that's the way to get people to come for free, like talking about that entertainment. So it's PR, it's the PR and brand building background that I have, but also the journalistic background coming in as well. So you have these indie brands that no one has heard of that you're bringing in from cult brands from different countries, but in in the UK and Europe, never heard of before. And the way to introduce them to the UK is to really tell their story and why is this brand so intriguing and interesting and why should you be buying into it because you know the sourcing practices the story behind the founder the journey they went on the rare plum that they put in it that suddenly changes everything to do with your hair or whatever that's the sort of stuff that really turns me on with beauty and i think it is the way that we like to discover as humans you know it's Mm. I think so much has become so much about a commercial value and commercial exchanges that a bit of romance and a bit of a yarn around you know a journey that someone's made it's brilliant you know everything's so computer says no nowadays it's nice to take a bit of time and go on these little voyages of discovery. And I think that's with beauty, with fashion, with a lot of consumer things that the brands that are doing really well at the moment are the ones that have really nailed that aspect. You have to be transparent in it. It has to feel real. That word authentic, it's been so overused, but authentic is really important in a sort of fake news world. You know, these little diamonds of authenticity just shine out so massively.
0: I wanted to touch on this period of time because obviously, right now, we're going through a similar scenario with COVID, and it's a tough time for business, you know, launching basically during crisis or a a recession. What advice might you give to small businesses listening about starting a time during a period that feels so incredibly tough? Well, I mean, I think it makes
1: you lean and it makes you practical, it makes you put, sometimes whimsy aside mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And, and it's also really about focusing down on your message and your reason for being. Your reason for being is the essential part of any brand. And, and if you can't believe in that and have a really strong brand message around that, you probably shouldn't be being, mm-hmm. to be honest. There's sort of a natural selection process that happens through any recession. But The advice that I would give to indie brands is your strength is your storytelling, your strength is your community, is your ability to connect with people on a much more human scale. And that is what consumers are really hunting out at the moment. So keeping that message really pure, but keeping very focused on who you want that message to go to. It's not about trying to dominate the world right now. It really is about understanding who your customer is and really focusing on that person, like become a complete customer cohort stalker. What are they reading? Where are they going? Nowhere. They're not going anywhere at the moment. So they are online. Yeah. (laughs) So What journeys do they take? You know, it's really looking at who that person is that you really want to speak to and make sure that you're there on their journey to work in the morning, even if that's a virtual one.
0: Oh, gosh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think these days we look at things and we say, yeah, well, we have to have a website and then we've got to be on social media and we've got to do X, Y and Z. Mm -hmm. But there is a beauty in taking that time to truly understand who you're trying to talk to. Because as you said, there's no point in trying to talk to the masses. If you're appealing to the masses, you'll only appeal to the masses... For a millisecond, mm-hmm. great businesses know who their customers are. The most fantastic businesses are obsessed with who their customers are, not just what they read, but what article in that magazine would they like? Mm. What do they have on their desk? Where will they be going away to? What are their values? What are their values exactly? What are they worried about with their children? What's those causes that they feel mute on, yeah. but actually would love to understand more, but might not have the confidence to discover it? It's such an interesting thing that I think we forget about. But certainly when we started not on the high street, you know that's what we did, and it makes marketing clever because then you can go and tap into that journey. And it could be that it costs you know next to nothing because no one else is looking at it. yeah, but you know your customer is there. And it really does start to then get your customer thinking about you differently because they're like, how come you turned up? in the oddest of places. <laughs> but I quite like that. It's a
1: fine line. There is always a discussion. It's like, how much should you um, do that? It's really important to do it in a natural way.
0: Oh, I mean a natural way. Yeah. Now you can be obsessed, can't you, with paid. You can follow everyone wherever they go uh, digitally.
1: It's just not viable. It's not a viable way of of running a marketing campaign. I think this is something that's happened in the last four or five years is this obsession with becoming a user unicorn within the first four years of your business and if you haven't managed to do that then you're an absolute failure and it's sort of been driven by this glut of private equity money that's hit the beauty vertical because it suddenly became very very exciting and it did suddenly become Mm -hmm. very very exciting and a lot of people did make a lot of money very quickly but that was sort of gold rush times and those times are very obviously, very definitely over, but how do you build a sustainable business? That's the important thing. And that sort of thing takes time. It takes time to percolate your brand through people's psyche. It just needs to settle and you need to kind of go back to it a few times and be reminded of it and maybe have a mate tell you about it. Oh, I saw that one the other day and I read a thing about here. And it's just, that's how you you build a brand sort of voice and a brand story in people's heads in a sustainable way. It takes a lot of work, but it's it's something that can't be rushed. Mm. I find if I'm getting loads and loads of social media ads for the same brand, it really turns me off. I like to feel like I've done a little discovery. I like to feel like uber cool, like I've totally worked it out myself
0: absolutely <laughs> I'm sure I'm not alone <laughs> and that has nothing to do with our lack of budgets to do these sort of marketing campaigns but I do think that you're totally right when starting Not in The High Street we used to call it the um, best secret that we slightly want everyone to know <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because we actually can't afford for you not to know about it. There's another great tagline. <laughs> Gosh, come to us for great <laughs> taglines, everybody. There was this discovery curiosity. You wanted to feel pretty cool for discovering Not in the High Street. Maybe you didn't want to tell anyone, you know, when you gave a gift. Oh, where'd you get that from? You slightly didn't want to say it because... I made it. Well, you didn't want anyone else because <laughs> you wanted to be the best gift giver, didn't you? Yeah. You did. You, so you exactly. slightly were, oh, I can't. Quite remember. And it's it's a wonderful thing. And I think that's where I love brands, you know, where they have such personality. And you yourself and Jesse, you both decided as well that, and this was something that we also did, but it took guts. You decided to curate, to cherry-pick, mm. you know, the best from the independent brands and create this sort of beauty hall of fame, championing and promoting these brands that no one necessarily had heard of. And it's incredible because actually I know that huge amounts of your brands are also run by women. Do you think that it's now becoming more important than ever that people really understand the founder's story? Did you know that when you started off that this is great marketing? You know, these brands are far more powerful than the bigger brands because of their stories. I didn't know that. But what's
1: happened in the meantime is as we've all moved our lives online, we've become more and more dehumanized. I've talked about the computer says no thing. You know, when you're when you're emailing a brand, like people really don't expect to get emails back sometimes. No. The wording that people email into an online brand, it's sort of just pushes pushing it into the ether. Hello, could somebody help me please? Because of the general experience of so many people of dealing with kind of the Amazons of this world where you'll get a bot reply or it just doesn't feel there's no human sense in the whole interaction. And I think because that is being slowly, slowly and more efficiently removed from our lives, you know, it does make life more efficient, removing humans. Yes, um, Because we are not that efficient generally in comparison to the AI. By doing that, we're losing our connections and we're actually getting to a point as a culture where we are actually really craving this kind of human contact human connection and there's this real sense that when you have a very visible founder standing up there heading up the social media kind of front line it's actually somebody who's standing up to be counted mm-hmm. it's not hiding behind layers and layers of corporation it's it's somebody you actually feel that you could email if you had a problem with their product, and that they would actually care somebody who's taking responsibility for the products or the commercial exchange that they've had with you and I think that's becoming more and more important to people I'm not sure they've necessarily considered it in those terms actually just quite an attractive concept to have a, a real human face to know about them and why they've created this particular cleanser but It is what we're increasingly craving as a consumer group.
0: And also, I I suppose that that person that you're talking about, that consumer group, they ultimately become a community as well, Mm -hmm. because they then join together with their shared love of discovery or connecting with brands. It's why when I speak to small businesses, I really talk about having this brand that has a heart and a mission further than it's just what they sell or what they do. Try to create that community for the long term. It's that slow race, building a community one person at a time that ultimately will then create a brand that's going to last a lifetime. Now, you must have built quite a community of people who believe in what you're doing. Is it 65% of businesses that you support are independent?
1: Yes, 65% of the brands that we stock. But we also have our community, community on on social media and and we were just celebrating today actually we got to 1.5 million instagram followers wow our social team just absolutely smashed it out the park and they're very engaged and all over the world i've always said that beauty is a bit like football for women in that you can connect with a complete stranger really easily just by talking about a skincare regime or a mascara. The mascara conversation is brilliant. You know, you can always have a damn good back and forth about what's the best mascara because no one agrees.
0: Oh, you're so right. <laughs> and i never thought of it like that. I love that. And I assume as well, having a community is such responsibility because it can also put people out of business as much. For- Put people in business before we chatted about the butcher, you were saying about this sort of village feel. Can you just recount that story?
1: Yeah, like I've always thought that the internet brought with it the rediscovery of the niche, very much in the way that it used to exist in a village. And, and coming from a village, I guess it was more obvious to me than lots of other people. But ultimately, you know, if Bob the butcher sells bad meat. Bob the Butcher is going to very quickly go out of business because of word of mouth, the peer reviewing, and the peer reviewing sort of happens on a more organic way in a village. But the internet has facilitated this mass village where we can all gather round like minded obsessions.
0: The village, I love that analogy, and I've never thought of it like that. Another thing I wanted to touch on was a mission of mine is to help empower more female founders that I. I'm so lucky enough to work with and try and cheerlead on about this fear of bloody finance and how it's holding women back. And I spoke to Day Hassan, who's the founder of Nubian Skin, about this on this podcast. And we spoke about how this area causes such anxiety, particularly for women. And when Sophie and I were raising money for Not in The High Street, you know, it was two female founders. Um, we were perceived to be blonde-haired women with our bag, with our personalised dinosaur T-shirt in it. We were sort of laughed out of boardrooms continuously. When did you do your fundraise? 2006. So you did it as a seed? Yes, we did it as a seed. We think that there was probably 05 percent of all money raised at the time that we raised went to women. It's not that much better now. I know. Well, hence why I've had to sort of take it back because basically there weren't women raising money at the time that we raised money. There was one woman who ran a VC fund in the whole of Europe. One. Oh. And we managed to get her. I know that cult beauty grew and that you and Jess looked to raise capital I'm interested to know what that experience was like as two female founders um I mean we were either met with
1: disinterest or kind of wolfish smiles I mean a lot of no one's gonna buy beauty online coming from somebody who'd never bought beauty in their entire life there's
0: lots of oh my wife likes that oh yes I had that My wife does all the gift shopping. Actually, all the shopping. Actually, I've never been shopping. That was some of the lines that we would get. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh, should I talk to your wife then about this? Yeah, I
1: think it was so expected and so never expected to be any other way. And it was the first time really that I'd ever sat in front of a... Financier, that it just was so alien to me. I mean, it's pretty much the first time that I've really done business with straight men. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a near miss, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We had um, somebody who really strung us along after having done due diligence on the business and knowing exactly how much money we had left. And um, it got to the point where I just called them up and said, Right, are you going to invest in cult beauty? And they said, Yes, I think we will. But the valuation is now half.
0: <sighs> and I just told him to fuck off. <laughs> well done. Well done. Because you know what? He wanted you right at that precise moment. It's like gazumping, isn't it? When buying a house. <laughs> he knew you were desperate. He'd seen how much money was in the bank account. And that is how he was going to treat you. Probably for the rest of your relationship. Yeah. I mean, well done you. And many people, by the way, aren't in that situation that they can turn away.
1: Well, it was such a bad offer that I hadn't really no other choice and he would have completely owned the business for a measly sum and actually would have ended up killing what was a fledgling amazing business. Um we just needed somebody to believe in us which is what we eventually ended up getting. So it's one of those things like it was quite a difficult conversation to have with Jess afterwards. I was like, "Uh yeah, just said no (laughs) and it was a really bad time we were literally like three weeks away running completely out of money but again it just had some brilliant ideas around how to get into a holding pattern there's always a way around these things even in the darkest darkest moments it is just about brushing yourself off and looking at it from a different angle maybe getting drunk quite a few times quite a lot that one night
0: (laughs) year together with our friends at three we're working to make business dreams come true share your dreams on social using the hashtag holly and co dreamer and who knows what will happen Three understands it's been a tough time for businesses, so they're offering their business price promise. A promise that if you find a better deal, they'll beat it. Not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to three.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dream big and flew. I don't design clothes, I design dreams are the words of renowned American fashion designer Ralph Lauren. Born to Jewish immigrant parents, Ralph grew up in the Bronx in New York and was raised with his three older brothers. His fashion sense started from an early age and at just 12, he would buy expensive suits with money he earned from his after-school job. After graduating, Ralph worked as a salesman and began studying business at night. After a stint in the army, his empire was founded when he opened his first ever tie shop with no formal training. Tailored suits and shirts were added the following year and polo menswear was born, creating an instant American classic. Women's clothing and homeware bearing the Ralph Lauren name followed and Ralph became the first fashion designer to have his own signature store. His contribution to the 20th century fashion scene cannot be underestimated and his idea of clothes always telling a story is reflected in his son's words that it's not about fabrics, it's about dreams. So never be afraid to dream big because as Ralph says, anything is possible and I'm living proof. Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and to find out more about their business plans search Three Means Business. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. I feel like we've had very, very similar journeys. As someone who, yes, went through that process four times. Yeah. In the end, you found your investors, the brilliantly hewed back Nessa and who truly believed in your concept. Well, they were actually part of the founding team of Netaporte? Porte. They weren't institutional investors. These are people who came in as angels. Oh, fantastic. So they actually got the nitty gritty. They actually got what it was like to be on the ground. Very few people had e-commerce experience because e-commerce hadn't
1: really existed. And it was very useful having somebody who'd done it before, if in a completely different category and it took a while to kind of communicate that the fashion category acted very different from beauty but there are a lot of similarities as well.
0: And for those who we've scared off raising capital because potentially we just did that in one fell swoop. <laughs> the point is, isn't it, that you know, your gut instinct kicked in there. Yeah. You knew it wasn't right. You had the power and the bravery to say no. Even though it meant you were in the deepest of ships when you needed, you were only a few weeks away from hopefully being out of it. And I know what that feels like. You know, you had the end in sight, didn't you? Yeah. And it must have taken you everything to walk away. I so want
1: to do a pretty woman moment if I ever see him again. Yes. I try not to hold on to these things. It's a very <laughs> negative thing to do, but I really want to have a pretty woman moment.
0: Yes. You've kept following his career just in <laughs> case you might happen to be in the same vicinity as him. One of my first investors, Tom Tightman, said that, you know, you have to be willing to walk down the business aisle with your investor. Oh God, yes. It's so like dating. It's so like dating. It's
1: hilarious. Yeah.
0: And so you need to not make a wrong move here.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, you can't worry about it too much, but I think your gut is your most important organ when it comes to that kind of decision. And ultimately ask the bare face questions, the stuff that's in the back of your mind. You know, what if you do this? What if that happens? And just ask it, you know, like it's one of those things. Just being very truthful about what you want out of the business helps them align with whether they want to support you in that journey. You know, It's about aligning your interests. If you find somebody whose interests are aligned exactly with yours, that's the best thing you could possibly
0: find in an Mm. investor. You are going to fall out, but if you are aligned, you'll find a way to come back. You did all of this with a co-founder. That too is like a marriage, isn't it? It's a shared passion. Sophie and I used to call each other work husbands. It's an amazing relationship when you have these sort of complementary skills. And I also say, to businesses out there, even if you've started, there's never a wrong time to bring on a co-founder. You know, it doesn't have to just be from conception. It can be along the journey. What has that journey been like and has it changed over time?
1: Yeah, it has. I mean, Jess left about seven years ago in the day-to-day. So she's a non-executive director and she's based out of the States now. For the first six seven years we were literally in each other's pockets and it was amazing like I have to say like doing something like that on your own I think it probably would have killed either of us Mm -hmm. it was just too much pressure and having the ability to bounce ideas and just sense check stuff. Am I mad for thinking this? Do you feel the same way? It's like two questions that are really useful to have. And I think, you know, finding a co-founder, and I now have a co-CEO with Mari Salmon, finding somebody that Is very different from you that has very different skill set is really important Mm -hmm. because it just means that you can be a good yin yang and you can have very different views on things and you can bring very different talents to the operation. It means that it's much more of a balanced partnership. Where people go wrong is when they have too many similar skills and then it can turn into sort of a bickering mess. But, you know, if you have these complementary skills, Where you can balance each other out is exactly where you want to be. What's been so amazing is watching the teams evolve. And a lot of the people who are at Cult Beauty have been there for quite a long time, you know, have have actually helped set this up and watch it as it's grown and as other teams have grown. And there's about 240 people now. Wow. And I've always found, and I'm really annoyed that we can't do it this year, is like the Christmas party is the moment to take stock. And just look around at the vast number of people that we've managed to gather together in the umbrella of this sort of quest for beauty excellence, (laughs) all getting a bit drunk on tequila and uh, dancing around the club. You know, that's something that makes me feel very proud and very content, just um, having been part of something that's created that.
0: It sounds like gut instinct and sort of a self belief has kept you standing, I suppose, during this journey. As I said, I, I really can empathise quite strongly with some of your journey and it isn't for the faint hearted. No. What would you say to people about trusting their gut, even if they're not even experts? You know, we just started saying, you know, neither of us had tech background, neither of us had retail background. And yet we went into building these marketplaces do you think that we can summons that courage and fake it till we make it? I grew self-confidence through cult beauty, really. I
1: I started with very little. That's a life journey, isn't it? To self-confidence and and self-acceptance. But getting to the point where you can actually stand up against somebody who maybe comes from a place of deep experience and actually challenge them in a nice way, but challenge them and say, actually, come at this from a very different perspective and here's my perspective. It's important to do, it's important to listen to what the advice that other people have, but it's also if that advice feels contrary to your mission, then it's time to ignore it. And actually that then feeds back to that need to have a very pure, very simple brand mission. That's what helps you make those decisions on a daily basis because you can refer back to it. Does this feed into this mission? Will this elevate this mission? Will it help grow it forward? And if it doesn't, it's
0: quite an easy thing to say no. I end all of my interviews, and this has just been a fantastic afternoon, thank you, with the analogy that running a business is like being on this epic roller coaster. And of course, you know, yours would be full of the most glorious potions and lotions. But I'm wondering what you would say has been your biggest low on this journey.
1: Oh, yeah, I think that period of time that we talked about where we were facing complete disaster, that was a really, really tough time. And it was quite hard to imagine things getting better. Because everything, everything was low. You know, we were, the entire economy was falling apart at the same time. So, yeah, optimism was in short supply.
0: Could you work out your life without cult beauty at that time?
1: No, I just couldn't see it. No. It wasn't even an option, which I guess was also how we managed to come out of it, because it just didn't even occur to us that actually there was an option B in the multiple choice of life. Uh, <laughs>
0: we were like... A, A, of course, So <laughs> what we going to do. And what would you say then has been conversely the greatest high? Oh man, it's an
1: ongoing one. It is what keeps the entrepreneur going. It's those moments, those little wins that happen and you have to do a little internal celebration of each one because there are a lot of sandbags that are flying in from the side. But I think, you know, it is that journey. It's looking back and, and realising that, I actually managed to do this, yeah, yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> I never imagined that that would happen. You know, that I'd started out on a mission because I was pissed off with the way that the beauty industry was as a consumer, and it's become something that random people have heard of. Yeah, that's just mental. You sit next to people, at strangers, well, used to sit next to strangers at a dinner party, and and actually get chatting, and you say, "Oh, I've got a, a business called Cot Beauty," and people say, "Like you?" Uh, oh my and I've got this. Oh my God, what's the best mascara?
0: Yeah, you must have that. <laughs> I literally <laughs> nearly did that to you before we went on air. I love what you just said that it just keeps giving to you. You're saying like the highs just keep on coming because it it can also be just the smallest of things can't it
1: that's what sustains you that's what i think becomes addictive it's those sort of little bits that get fed through is is, that's why it's quite difficult to talk about one particular one because ultimately you'll celebrate it for a bit and then you'll move on you know you can't sit around going oh we are amazing (laughs) we got that award isn't that brilliant you're like that's great awesome anyway tomorrow what are we going to do you know and it is
0: that's just the way that it works, isn't it? It's addictive. You're right in saying that. My goodness, I feel like I've really met a kindred spirit here, and um, it's just been such a joy to talk to you. Yeah, it's and how been really fun! The more us women can be honest and open about this journey, the the better it is for all of us. It's now that time of the podcast where I'm going to ask you if you would mind reading a letter you prepared earlier to your younger self. And I don't know what you're going to say to us today, but um, I just wanted to thank you in advance for sharing a bit of your soul with us on this wonderful afternoon.
1: No, probs. Right. Well, I have actually three little notes to send myself at different life stages. Ooh. The first is aged 11 when you feel like a bit of a freak. You are the tallest person in your year, a bit chubby and ungainly and you fit in like a bicycle in a sock. It will take years, but you will come to understand that those most awkward questioning parts of your being will become the building blocks to a creation that will blow your tiny little mind. And it involves beauty products every day, your obsession. Keep reading. Introverts don't tend to hit the high notes on the aspirational scale. It doesn't suit the modern image of the go-getter, entrepreneur, windswept and interesting with a party in every port. You are an introvert. Learn to love its quiet power. The introverted listener observes what is stirred up and exposed in the wake of an extrovert's propeller. It's easy learnings. You will eventually shed the chubbiness and will even become a model after university. But contrary to expectations, this will teach you that the glamorous dream is a lie, that the rich sparkly curtain hides an anxious Wizard of Oz unsure of why he's propagating the myth. Models are considered part of the furniture. Rather than being indignant about this, absorb the insight that spills out of people when you are unthreatening and make them tea." age 17, on the first worst day of your career. You're never going to believe this, but even though today you were just rejected from a job stacking shelves at Tesco, a position on the factory line of an egg processing plant, a jumper folding gig at the Edinburgh Woolen Mill and the graveyard shift of an all-night petrol garage, your career will get better. No experience is wasted. In fact, your many jobs ranging from the mundane to the outright bizarre, tyrannical bosses, mind-blowing events, catastrophic failures and a stuttering inability to choose a career lane were all, it turns out, just packing a life suitcase of contacts, knowledge, blagging practice and, of course, photos for blackmail purposes. As yet unused. You will spend many years waitressing and working the door at clubs and it will give you a degree in human behavior and a PhD in empathy. It will teach you not only how to disarm an aggressive drunk, but to be disarming to a panel of potential investors. Have the confidence to respect what you bring in your life suitcase so you can use it efficiently. Always take time to bring others up with you. They will be the metaphorical arm to grab when you stumble. Share your good ideas. Ideas jealously guarded shrivel and die. They need light and collaboration to live up to their promise. There will come a time where the world moves so fast that the most precious thing for your business will be originality. And then the last one is age 30, when you are uninspired by your job and love life, sharing a tiny flat in a windowless bedroom where the ceiling is one centimeter shorter than you are. Don't set yourself age-based life markers. It is a sure road to depression because it ignores all the insightful and joyful experiences that come day by day. Focusing on a black and white list of society norms, marriage, money, mortgage, avoids the colorful examination of the areas where you lack conformity and what other opportunities your life has and will present in the future. You will come late to the marriage baby party in your 40s, but any earlier would have seen both suffer in the shadow of cult beauty's conception and the years of toil that followed. The best thing I've learned so far is that advice is a form of nostalgia presented as fact. Listen to people's recommendations in context and never let another person's life choices or achievements make you feel bad or better than them as things can and will switch in a second. It's very easy to give good advice with hindsight. Good luck, girl. You'll be fine.
0: Oh my goodness. Never has anyone, I've nearly done a hundred of these. Never has anyone done anything like that. (laughs) Also, just your words, your language. I felt like you were speaking to me you know it was just unbelievable how you've picked those wonderful moments you said so many things there that are going to help so many people oh it's my pleasure thank you because you've taken such time over that letter and three letters even (laughs) and it's just been an absolute joy to listen to thank you so much for your time today really has been such a pleasure to talk to you before you go, don't forget NatWest's Business Builder. Packed full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.